0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today, friends, I am taking not only you, but Paul Hoppy, one of my most regular co-hosts, into a garden of contemplation. Paul doesn't actually know what the topic of today's podcast is, and that's kind of intentional. We've had a little bit of a journey getting here. Uh, I had a podcast lined up, but my podcast host wasn't able to uh, take part last night because apparently um, they live in the darkest of Alaska and the internet is not always great there. So I was trying to figure out what I should do instead, and I wound up going on quite a journey over the last couple weeks, but especially over the last six hours or so as I was driving to Wisconsin to see my partner Abby on a further journey. I'm going to Cincinnati for a magic event, actually a Lorcana event, and during that time I went on a journey that really was bringing up all kinds of thoughts that are relevant to this podcast because it was really a journey into how do we as people – and Paul doesn't think they're part of that group, but you know how do how, how do we, the human species, and Paul, the Paul species, deal with darkness? Deal with despair? Deal with tragedy? Deal with the realization that we're in a terrible situation and we don't think we can change it? And this is a topic I think it's very dear to me, particularly at Christmas time and at holiday time, because like so much of this time is about the Return of light and the rebirth of light and of heat and of hope and of warmth and abundance into a time that is, for us in the northern hemisphere, where a lot of these holidays were created, uh, seen as, for I think understandable reasons, a time of scarcity and darkness and, and a loss of hope. And so I think there's a lot of relevant topics here, but I really can't dance around it anymore. Those of you who our fans of a certain podcast may know what I mean when I say that I'm in the garden of contemplation, that we're going to be talking about the Shadow Man. But for those who don't understand, this all starts with my viewing of a movie called Paul Blart Mark, Mall Cop 2. <laughs> Again, Paul has no idea what's happening here, and so he's laughing a bit about this. I didn't um, even
1: know this was an episode of Superhero Ethics. I thought you were like starting a new podcast and you're like, yeah, do nope. you wanna just be on this podcast and I'm not gonna tell you like <laughs> what it is? Just like the very first episode of Superhero <laughs> Ethics, where you're like, Hey, do you wanna talk about Batman and press record? I was like, Yeah, sure, why not?
0: And then here yep. we are, however many episodes later. Hundreds of episodes later. Um, I forgot that, yeah, that's what we did with that first episode, but I was in a bad place, so you would help me It's, out.
1: it's, it's all um, good.
0: You know, you and Kevin Smith. It's been a journey. But, so anyway, and let me start by being clear, this is a horrendously bad movie. I'm not in any way encouraging anyone to watch this movie. I don't think anyone should watch this movie. I think the movie is actively harmful to American society and isn't like in the top 10 or even the top 20 reasons why Trump got elected, but it's probably somewhere on the list. but the only reason why I care about this movie is that it was shown to me over the uh, holiday break. Uh, A good friend of Mary's and my, myself, um, Ash was staying with us for a couple weeks after some, uh, surgery they were going through. And she, um, was like, we were talking about holiday movies. She was like, we have to see this Thanksgiving movie. And I had vaguely heard about Paul Blart, mall cop. I didn't realize there was a second one. And I knew that, like, Adam Sandler, Kevin James kind of humor is generally not for me. I had not paid any attention to it, and I didn't understand why she was claiming it was a Thanksgiving movie. But as she went on to explain, it's not itself a Thanksgiving movie. It's that the McElroy brothers, who many people know from the podcast My Brother and My Brother and Me or their D&D podcast, they become kind of like podcasting people uh, of great renown, and my spouse is a big fan of them. Apparently, they had teamed up with people from another podcast called The Worst Idea of All Time, where they take a particularly bad movie and watch it every week for 52 weeks and record on it each week, had decided to take that concept and expand it, and that a Thanksgiving tradition for both of their, both of their communities would be that every year they would come together to watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 and discuss it, and use it as a way to mark the passage of time and they made a very big deal about how this was going to be a forever thing and they even were picking like when they passed away who would there be their successors and all this kind of thing now let me stress again this is a very bad movie um it is a movie where as far as i can tell the writing was actively competing to see Could it be more fat-phobic? Could it be more misogynistic? Or could it be more just generally insulting to the working class and security guards in in specific? The movie itself would not be worth talking about, and frankly, they talk about it at great length and do it with great hilarity. But I listened to one or two episodes over the last week or so, and then on this aforementioned five-hour drive, I listened to probably four full episodes of theirs. And it wound up being this startling like, insight into how we deal with horror, how we deal with despair. Because every year they would come together and they would talk about, like, the horrible experience of watching this movie and and the sense of an impending dread. But something interesting started happening over those various years, which is that they all started to deal with this horrible situation. And granted, I'm, I'm speaking in, like, You're watching a bad movie for two hours. This is nothing compared to the actual tragedies of the world. And I think they're always being very fairly tongue-in-cheek about their pain about it. But the pain is quite real. And you could start to see the different ways that they would react to it. Because for some of them, like the first year, they're all just like, okay, this is really bad. And we're just going to have fun talking about how bad it is. But that wears off after a year or two. You can't keep doing the same jokes again and again and again. And so they started to diverge. And for some of them, they started, it it felt like it was the I am faced with this terrible thing in my life. The best I can do is to find a way to be okay with it, to find the good parts in it, to find the things that can bring me joy, and that maybe it's not so bad, and that that's kind of a coping mechanism. And for others, they would get very angry at that and be like, no, no, we have to rage. We ha- we cannot accept that there's anything acceptable about this situation. We have to live in our grief and in our, our upsetness about this. And, and just those two positions alone speak to me quite a lot about I think a lot of a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast, about what do you do in the midst of terrible situations? And do you fight back? Do you try to think about how it could be better? Or do you just accept and find the find the beauty in the darkness and all that kind of thing? And then as more years went on, more and more this got some of them started looking for deeper meaning. And so they started taking scenes such as when a Kevin James playing Paul Blart, the I think some would argue the antagonist of the movie, some would say the protagonist, many would say just a horrible person, although the director seems to want us to have them redeemed by the end. But halfway through the movie, they fight a large bird for no real reason, and the bird kicks their ass, I think to the cheers and joys of most, and during that scene, there's just a guy playing a piano throughout the whole thing. Utterly, like, ir- like, not responding in any way to Kevin James's pleas for help, to Paul Bart's please for help, but clearly acknowledging Paul Bart, And even to the end, when Paul Bart has walked away from the fight beaten, but not bloodied, but not broken, and kind of, but there's no real damage to the bird, to be very, very clear. The bird is the victor in this fight. But as he walks away, he looks at that man playing the piano and kind of just nods, is like, thanks for the help. And the guy just smiles at him and, and nods his head in acknowledgement and keeps playing the piano. And so that scene has now taken on like mythic proportions within their their watch of it they're they're discussing like is it supposed to be that the bird is god and the piano player is satan or and and challenging him or that like the 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 piano player is actually urging him on to face his inner demons represented by the bird they're finding such deep meaning in this where clearly none was meant to exist to begin with and so I was hoping Paul would have had more funny interjections along this whole path, and maybe this whole podcast idea was a ridiculous one, but we're we're here, we're going to go through it, we're going to find a way to have a conversation.
1: Um, Well, I was thinking you should flip the bird there, Um, the metaphor, because when you describe mm -hmm, that scene to me, that sounds to me more like the bird, wait, yeah, like the bird sounds more like a Satan figure, and the dude playing on the piano seems to me like what I would imagine, like... If I could conceive of the idea that there was some omnipotent power in this world, which I, I don't, like, mm-hmm. I think it would be about as interested in what humans are doing as that piano player, just yep. based on the reality that I see in front of me. And the, you know, fair. and the bird seems like, you know, it's, it's just there <laughs> trying to, you know, live its life. Yeah. But I don't know. You know what I, but yeah, it just sounded backwards to me, and then I thought, "Flip the bird." I'm like, "Hey, that sounds appropriate too, because that's what people yeah. want to do to this movie." I think
0: flip the bird. Exactly. It's fitting. And then, and then, uh, so that actually, we'll get back to the question of suffering and and the like. But that's actually a perfect example of the other thing that this movie really struck me as is. I kind of feel like I'm watching the birth of mythology. <laughs> right. Now, yeah, like, yeah. 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 Because like, like I'm telling you this ridiculous story and how people find it ridiculous meaning, and now you're continuing this idea of like. Just based on... My, you haven't seen the movie. I, you're I have just not. hearing my retelling of other people considering it, and you're coming up with your own stories and meaning around it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not meaning that I am emotionally attaching myself to, <laughs> but meaning know, that if you're gonna go down that path, you right. know, this sounds more logical to me. Um, I will note that we did watch the Star Wars Holiday Special together with a group of people. you did. And did. did not make that an annual tradition
0: (laughs) we did not we did not many have Mm, yeah Uh, i I chose that i love my fans and i love myself yeah
1: yeah 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 that particular kind of sadism or masochism is not Mm -hmm. um yeah no thanks no thanks yeah although i the the good in that i got to see b arthur sing to a bunch of aliens and right that scene is magnificent in its own really it actually it it feels kind of like this whole bird thing in a way
0: And we got Boba Fett and the Mandalorians.
1: That's true.
0: (laughs) Like, I would say that, like, the Star Wars Christmas special, to me, it sits in a larger tableau. So we can understand it, even if it is a particularly, like, you know, it's a bad stitch in that tableau. And it felt like I was able to laugh along with the pain the first time. I think maybe if I watch it again and again, I would probably have similar feelings. But to me, that feels different because it does feel like it is part of again this larger Star Wars story mm. whereas this is just
1: well this is part 2
0: who it knows is part what two. part
1: 3 may bring
0: but the does that bird get a spinoff have, I I have not yet seen the bird have a spinoff okay. there have been some kind of there was some hope apparently that during the pandemic when when people were 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 digging deeper and deeper into the bottom of the barrel to find content that somehow Paul Blart 3 might have risen to the top but such has yet to happen. Sadness. Um,
1: For those people. I yeah. I literally don't care.
0: <laughs> Although, I, I will say,
1: like, I'm always mildly offended at just how bad Pauls are in movies, you know? You
0: know, I had not even considered that this was about a fellow Paul. <laughs> yeah. Because you're so not this person. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, yeah, no.
0: I mean, Paul Atreides is kind of cool.
1: I, I guess. I guess, yeah. I mean... He- kind Maybe. of a
0: messianic figure who saves the whole galaxy spoilers for books that are almost 100 years old
1: i thought that didn't work out super well spoilers for something that i actually didn't read but i've had i've had the uh length of the dune mythology explained to me by ashley coffin and mm-hmm. I, I i might not have the whole thing down straight but it sounds I think very it doesn't interesting. work
0: out for well him in the end but like he does save the universe or the galaxy or some some. All right. okay. portion of... One one point for cinematic Pauls. <laughs> <laughs> well, who are some other anti-Pauls then? We have Paul Blart.
1: Yeah. Um, well, There's Paul Sparicky in um, Gross Point Blank, who's the Jeremy Piven character, who's the kind of okay, sort of slimy real estate. I don't have a whole bunch that pop to mind, but that's kind of the point. The point is yeah. that they're often kind of bland. Like, they're like the boyfriend of the love interest who needs to be, you know, like... Yeah, it's like, or just like, just kind of like nothing characters a lot of the time. I don't think this is always true. I think this was less true, like
0: Mm. several
1: many decades ago.
0: You know, when Paul. I mean, the kind of like in our very Christianized society, which is not a good thing, but it's just the way it is. That's what it is. The name does go back to the guy who's the original. Like, I'm not the protagonist of the story, but I'm going to try to be. Right. You know, in terms of the Apostle Paul, who's like. I used to be a schmuck, but now I'm trying to be better, and I want everyone to listen about this other guy, but also Mm. listen to me a lot. And so I can kind of see some things. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other good Pauls. Like, I feel like there have been some good Pauls on TV. I mostly think of Paul Reiser characters, and probably these characters (laughs) are named not Paul, but I just think of Paul Reiser as such a great actor.
1: Sure. I think of him as actually not, as kind of dislikable in that same way, though, where he just Mm. feels a little, maybe that's just from, like, Aliens. But That's fair. I feel That's like fair. he's off. Also, I just saw him in Beverly Hills Cop, which I rewatched recently. How did that is, and, age? Um, you know, okay. I mean, there's certainly it's parts that were funny are still funny. You know, there's okay. There's some jokes that probably don't quite you know mm-hmm. work the same way. But um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. You know, yeah.
0: Because um, I recently watched Die Hard as again. You know, sort of a Christmas movie.
1: Yeah.
0: It's still a wonderful movie of its time, but it has not aged well. Mm. Um, particularly having a central plot, forgive me spoilers for a forty year old movie, but about will the cop who shot a teenager be willing to find his copness again so he can use his gun again <laughs> right, as right. a great heroic moment. Like that doesn't really it That's, probably wasn't uh, as great as I thought it was in the time. I mean it was six, but also like just not great today in any way. Um but back to these topics. Um just on the mythology thing further. Like how what do you what do you think of when when someone says the word mythology or like this is a myth? Like mm-hmm. what does that mean to you in terms of how you feel about the stories you care about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of mythology as basically stories that like have a tendency or goal of like really grabbing the imagination in a in a, like, fundamental, like, visceral way um, Mm -hmm. that are made up, but that people are very deeply attached to, you know? Right. And, um, I mean, I think it's interesting that there are so many similarities from mythologies Mm -hmm. to to other mythologies, including in in parts of the world that, like, had no contact with one another, presumably. You know, there's things that show up frequently and... Um, you know, I find that very interesting. I I don't necessarily find a lot of meaning in that, or mm-hmm. you know, try make like assumptions about like what happens to cause that, yeah. or so much as like you know, maybe there are kind of certain psychological needs that that people have, you know, that are yeah. are like if not universal, um, very common, you know, yeah. Um, and then you know on. In addition to that, though, I think drawing parallels between different stories or different mythologies, it's easy to go too far and see everything as just like an archetype and ignore the specifics, um, which, you know, could be cultural specifics or could be storytelling specifics and, and kind of be like, you know, like I think the Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces, like, right. speaks to certain truth, but then you know, is, is reductive as well. Right. And so I think, I think a lot of the times that's, that's what's going to happen. But um, yeah, I mean, like from a personal enjoyment standpoint, um, I often, I, you know, I find big mythological stories fun, I think is kind of Mm -hmm. how I've always kind of viewed them all as a a sort of entertainment. And to, to me, sort of the, the fewer people, who care deeply about a story like beyond just kind of like what happens and the characters and whatever, kind Mm -hmm. of the easier I find it to enjoy. Right. You know? Um, And I think the more that, um, you know, kind of modern mythology or modern stories really overtly try to echo religious mythology that is currently followed or, or, Mm-hmm. Appreciate it in whatever capacity. I think for me that tends to be a turnoff because it it yeah it feels a little too much like someone's trying to. I I never really enjoy feeling like the storytellers are re- are trying to make a really explicit point or a really specific point. I I yeah. enjoy stories more that tend to um kind of raise questions and encourage yeah. the the viewer or the listener. To or the reader to to just have some thoughts, you know, yeah. just like which well, it I... sounds like Paul Blart Mallcop too, kind of you know if you, if you really dig in there,
0: <laughs> sounds like it can do that. But then maybe any story can. I don't know. Well, I, I think what you just said is kind of the whole thesis statement that I've been wrestling with is because to me the fact that and kind of the little exchange we had at the beginning I think is kind of a proof of it how. There's a bunch of what you said that I want to respond to, but I want to kind of pull on this thread and and go back to something you said at the very beginning, which is that, you know, mythologies are, you know, that if I understood you correctly, you were saying, like, mythologies are made up. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, certainly that I think part of what marks a myth is that we don't in any way have knowledge or proof that it did literally happen, and most of the time we have proof that it literally didn't happen. But then a lot of the time... My understanding, at least, is that there is some kernel of truth that then, like, gets told and retold, and and the, it becomes mythologized mm-hmm. and becomes mythology that sometimes has basis in literal truth and sometimes is just stories that people made up. Right. Um, but it, it to me that's part of what the Paul Blart process has been fascinating to me about. the The podcast is called Till Death Do Us Blart. Oh. Um, Oh, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it hurts. Yeah, it does. It does. So <laughs> death blart is maybe the best way to describe this whole thing. Um, Darth blart. But yeah, it, it, no. it really got me thinking about, like, can any story just become a myth like that? And can we look for meaning like that in almost any story? Because you're right. Like, I, I think a lot of the things that often to me strike me about myths is that they're somewhat primordial. Like, they, mm-hmm. they, 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 they touch upon kind of like fundamental questions or fundamental issues and so for example that scene in in the garden of contemplation you know man versus nature is a story that I think is often mythologized and you as a vegan have helped me to see that like like I think one of the things that's happened in the last however many decades is we're, we're re-examining a lot of our myths and when I say we I should say like you know those in the overculture. Uh, white, straight, cis, all the you know American, British, whatever have been looking a lot more at at the myths that we have always seen ourselves in as the heroes and realizing the wait, a lot of people in the like see themselves as the oppressed in the myth and and not see the myth as heroic. And I think the man versus nature one is that you and, and talking to you about veganism have really helped me to see in a different way. But still, I think that that, that this kind of is the it's it's the primordial story of man versus nature. And also then of, you know, do you treat the suffering of another, of another human with empathy or with disdain? Or mm-hmm. with, like, the kind of, like, you know, because I think, like, to me, the I'm playing music for you, buddy, is, like, you know, thoughts and prayers, <laughs> uh, you know? Um, so, yeah, that I think is just a fascinating way of kind of looking at it all.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, like, in sporting events, like – That's what cheering is, right? And it is actually, you hear athletes talk all the time about, you know, wanting to thank the fans and how much it means to them to have their support and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think sometimes having someone, you know, I mean, the thing about sporting events is the fans can't really do much else unless they're like. Jeffrey Mayer or something, and they want to, you know,
0: right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> either rob a home run or make a home run, uh, you know, something that wouldn't he have been. He just wanted into to it. catch
0: a foul ball. Just wanted to a ca- It was a, that yes.
1: was that one was a, a home run though. That wasn't a foul ball, sense. right? The other the other no, guy yeah, yeah. in Chicago that ball. was a foul ball. This was yeah, yeah. You just you just want to catch a ball, but like. You know, in general, fans can't really intercede on behalf of you know the the people they're right. rooting for. Whereas here, maybe there's an idea. Well, this guy could have done something. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Maybe he would have helped the bird. I might have helped the bird. I mean, he might have been know.
0: bound by the rules. Like you know, I on the Star Wars podcast we recently discussed. Like, why does why is it that Obi Wan says, "Luke, if you go to face Vader at the end of Empire, I cannot interfere." Like, right is it because he like there's some jedi rule is it that like his force projection powers won't work there like we don't know and so maybe to luke's perspective obi-wan is just the guy playing piano while he fights the vader bird or whatever it is yeah he
1: kind of is you know he's like if you strike <laughs> me down i will become more po- powerful than you can possibly imagine like really obi-wan really like is that you're like hey go go talk to yoda he'll help you yeah. like that that's like he doesn't he doesn't I think more powerful than you can possibly imagine would would be. I can imagine that powerful.
0: <laughs> you know. Yeah.
1: You know. That's I mean, like,
0: I, I do think like in some ways, I think of one of the things that to me is very much a big part of mythology, and this is why I think that the the, the, the blartification of it all is so relevant. Is that yes, there are these myths of things like King Arthur and Robin Hood and you know a thousand and one nights and stuff like that that we. Um, can find whether there's historicity to it or not but the stories have taken on a power of their own but there's also myths in our own lives and in our own you know and like i think paul uh babe ruth's called shot is Mm. a great example to me of like i'd heard that story told to me a hundred times yeah and then you dig deeper and there's a lot of people who are there who were like eh he was kind of just like pointing at a bird or something or like you know, he, like, th- there's all these different versions of, like, is that what really happened? Right, right. And even to the point of, like, you and I have been friends for a number of years. Mm. It's a very high number. <laughs> yes, I don't that's what I accurate. think about. That's accurate. And there are stories among us that have become mythologized, you mm-hmm. know? Like, the right number of chips for the right number of salsa. You've got to protect the ratio. That, yeah, you probably remember the exact details of which better than I. But it has got, like, there are people in my life who know that story because they've heard me make reference to, <laughs> mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. other situations. But whereas the metaphor I just use, the, like, there's not enough chips for this salsa. Right. They have no idea what happened. They've just heard my retelling of it. It's become a myth, but it's a myth that holds meaning. Um, for for those who don't know, we had a certain amount of salsa, a certain amount of chips among me, Paul, and our friend Adam. Uh, Our friend Adam was eating chips without the salsa, which was very concerning to Paul because it was upsetting the ratio therein. And And They're just going to have a
1: bunch of salsa without any (laughs) chips to eat it. I mean, what's that? (laughs) You want me to drink salsa? I think that's a reason to go get more
0: chips, but, you know, that continues the life cycle. We, forever. we were,
1: like, in the middle of nowhere at someone's country house on, like, some island somewhere. We, like, is there, there were not going to be more chips for a good three days. <laughs> like, these were the amount of chips we had. We had a certain amount yeah. of salsa. And they needed to go together. But it's okay. And clear,
0: we were, I think, like, 15, 16 or 17. We were not, like, going to go hop in a car and go get more chips at the store 10 miles away or something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we were, like, 18 or 19 or Almost 20-ish, maybe. Maybe less than yeah. 20. But also, I don't think... Maybe you had a driver's license. I know yeah, we're I did You're right. You're we older
0: than I-, I remember. It. But again, <laughs> it see the details matter. get get forgotten. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, so, right, So uh, we'll come back to the myth point, but I want to go back to what is, for me, I think kind of the fundamental thing, which is that this question of how do people respond to horrible situations? Mm, and again... Okay, yeah having to watch a bad movie once for two hours out of a year is not the worst situation. It's kind of a microcosm, but it was still very interesting to me. What have you observed that you either find, like, like this is, is helpful to me or this is troubling to me or this I find tempting but I don't want to do, in terms of, like, how you, resol- how you respond or how you see other people respond to really bad situations but that people feel like they can't do anything about?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean... I guess from a fairly young age, I realized that the world was filled with things that I thought were like unimaginably awful, and that Mm -hmm. I had very little ability to do anything about any of those directly. And, you know, my first reaction, I think, is generally like, well, what can I do about any of this? And if the answer is, well, here's something you can do to actually. Meaningfully make things better, then I usually try to do that, you know. Right. Um, but I I think what we're talking about more is is things where that's not you know I'm not gonna go and a war somewhere, you know. Yeah. I'm not gonna stop people from oppressing one another or animals like globally in <clears throat> in, in like an afternoon. You know, that's not that's right. not a thing. Or even in a lifetime, right? That's not. It's not a thing one person can do. Um, But, you know, there are things that we can do to try to either reduce some of those things, like these huge, horrible things that go on throughout the world, or at least do our best to not contribute to furthering them, right? I mean, to me, that's the first step is to try and understand, okay, here's all this horrible stuff, all this harm that's being done. And, you know, oftentimes it's like, oh, I see how I'm... Not intentionally a part of it, but am a part of it, you know, and then Mm -hmm. it's like how to what extent can I can I reduce that, you know, Um, and then beyond that, when there is still so much suffering and uh, horror in the world, I think finding a way to do something else that's not engaging with that constantly you know, right. I play bullet chess like, you know, I mean, yeah. every people have the things, you, you know, you. but like having something else to spend some mental energy on. Right. I mean, even if you say, you know what, I've decided that this situation is unacceptable and I know I can't completely change it, but I've decided to dedicate my entire life to trying to change this one thing or make make whatever impact I can. Yeah. If your goal, if that's your goal, is is to just have the maximum effect on a thing, I don't believe that spending all of your time trying to do that is the most efficient way. I don't. I don't think that's the yeah. way you're going to have the biggest effect. I think burnout is very
0: real. It is. And like, if you spend ten years doing nothing but that thing. And then just are done. Yeah. Like, or you spend like 50 years spending 70% of your time doing that thing or even 40% or 10% of your time. That's probably a far more effective way of, you know, making the change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Except for the 10% because then that would be only about half as much unless... Effort the, the over math. time is yeah the math, but but the point being returns and all that yeah, yeah. The, the point <laughs> matters though the point is like if you're but it's it's probably even ten percent because if you're trying yeah. to put a hundred percent of your energy at the end of in five years in you're not going to have as much energy right it's like right. if it's like well why are you sleeping really you think you have the luxury to to sleep while people are dying like. Yeah, yeah, you do, because you can't you can't do anything productive if you never sleep, yeah. right? So it's like, obviously, you have to have some kind of rest, something. You have to eat. You, you have to mentally replenish yourself. You have to take care of yourself enough to be able to take care of anybody else, to be able to help anybody else in any way, really. Right. Um, but, you know, then, you know, if what you really do want to do is do as much as you can for something, then you have to understand, like at what point you're kind of just making an excuse to like rest too much or whatever. And right. You know, but you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's any, anything that I've decided, like I'm going to put all of myself into that. Right. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing right. most of the things I do if that's the case. You know, I, I mostly have tried to kind of, um, withdraw from, from a lot of things. And basically when, when something seems really messed up to me, I, Just generally tend to say that's really messed up and try and help other people come to the or encourage other people to come to the same conclusion, you know, to the the best of my ability. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I I think finding a way to to not be constantly confronted with whatever horror it is, you know, and and even like I mean, I'll I'll take a I took someone to the dentist today, you know, and this is this is very Paul Blart. This is not, you know, it's on, on the, I th- I think going to the dentist is probably more painful than watching any movie, but maybe I mean, not. I mean, physically anyway, right? Maybe not emotionally. I'm thinking about the things that I've hated the most. And I'm like, mm, I'd rather go to the, 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 the dentist than like watch the end of Dexter again or like, yeah. you know, certain scenes from other <laughs> things that, or whatever, okay. you know? So, but like, this is just like a very, it's just literal pain and discomfort, right? And- yeah. When I go to the dentist, like often I'll like, I'll like do all of my Taekwondo patterns in my head, you know, even if I'm not really practicing regularly or like now, like maybe I would try and do some like blindfold chest problems in my head or like sometimes if I, if my brain just isn't like really going there, like I'll actually take my fingernails and like dig them into the back of the other hand Uh as just like a distraction. It's like, oh, well this little discomfort is actually distracting me from this other larger discomfort. You know, and so like if something just seems like overwhelming, like if you want to be trying to help people with things, and you're like, well, that thing's too much. It's just too much for me right now. Right. It's like you know, you can try and find some smaller thing where people also need help, but it just doesn't feel like too much to you right now, and you can still be you know constructive. There's the
0: um, in Judaism, there's a concept um, uh, called tikkun olam, which is loosely, I'm going to get this bad, I've I'm, I'm been exposed to Judaism all my life, but I'm not a Jewish theologian by any means, but it's basically the idea of that um, to save a single life is to save the world entire, you know, mm. and that, like, it's about, you know, doing the little bit you can. Um, yeah, and it, it's, it's a very interesting question because part of what it got me thinking as well is that in so many of the superhero-type stories that I care most about, the the biggest thing that the hero can do is to inspire others, is to give people the thought that there is something that they can do, that they, they don't have to just accept this crushing reality because there are alternatives. Um, I often go to V for Vendetta as my favorite example, but I do think that it's a big part of that, but also of many other stories of, you know, I think um, uh, Andor, uh, the TV show, is a perfect example of this, as is Rogue One, of where one person stand, like. Fe- specifically in Star Wars, they say fear is what will keep people in line mm-hmm. because when it's a minority oppressing a majority, they always know, like, if every single person in the majority rises up, the minority is going to lose. But a significant part of the majority are going to die. Yeah, And that fear, I think for very legitimate reasons, sure. keeps people from doing it. Yeah but that the way horrible things can play into it is it just gets to be so bad that it's not even like an actualized fear of this person has a gun or this person's going to fire me. It's just a kind of a generalized fear, you know? And so this is why, and I'm skipping around a couple topics here, but I think it all ties together. You know, friends of mine who were like the first uh, woman pastor at a church, like it was often the older women who had the most trouble accepting them Mm. and, and, in getting to know them, this wasn't always the truth, but often it was because those were women who might have wanted to be pastors like 30, mm-hmm. 40 years ago and were told they couldn't be. Right. But that once one person was able to do it and and show like, wait, it actually you can do this, other people can say, hey, wait, I can do this too. And I always thought that that's V for Vendetta, like, you know, by blowing up the old Bailey at the beginning of the movie and then continuing to challenge the government in ways that they see like – you know the other people see like they the really it, the government isn't as scary and completely totalitarianly oppressive as we want it, as we seem to think it is, not that it's better than we think it is, but just that it can be challenged yeah you know? it's just and not all that powerful, yeah exactly and you know and granted like it's not quite the same in the death blart because they voluntarily agreed to do this right and and it's kind of a kind of a, a keeping watch thing, but I think I was thinking about all this especially because with some of them would start to you know the oh well it's not so bad you know like these are some right. good parts to it and then like when they were really pushed by the others on the podcast they were like they're okay yeah no it's an awful movie don't get me wrong but i i kind of i had a good watch this year mm-hmm. i enjoyed some parts of it you right. know and because i think to me one of the th- and granted i'm not i haven't had i've only watched the movie once i can't say that if i'd watched it every year for seven years where i would be with it But I know that for me, in some of the harder situations we deal with, and I think COVID is the best example of this, but a lot of others, capitalism, I think, is another great one. Like It is easy to start start basically kind of like being so used to the hardest parts, the worst parts, that we kind of stop thinking about them. Mm. We just kind of take for granted, okay, well, capitalism sucks, but hey, it gave us 20 different kinds of cereal, so maybe that's kind of cool. Or, you know, COVID is bad, you know, just, just the like how quickly people acclimated themselves to, we don't need masks anymore. We don't need to be protected anymore. Um, Jump in at some point, because I think there's all a point here, but you know, I'm not maybe articulating it well. Yeah, Um, I mean,
1: (laughs) I love cereal. I don't like COVID. Um, Haven't had it to my knowledge, which I think I, I often get the reaction like that, you know, there's, 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 that's not a large number of people (laughs) who, Mm -hmm. who, who, you know, that's true. Um, but yeah, it is. You know, it's people. I mean, I had a conversation with another friend who who was saying, you know, I don't even know how many times I had it now, but like, it's it's a lot. He's like, well, I guess I'm just gonna get sick every so often if I, you know, he's a, a poker player, you know, yeah. and live poker player. So it was always a right, you know. I mean, right when when COVID was kind of still up and coming, it was. Uh, I was like, I think a poker table is just about one of the worst places for like is one of the most efficient ways of spreading something like this right so
0: everyone's facing it's not even like yeah breathing into the back of your head you're all facing each other a lot of you are making like loud exclamations yeah the air is very stale in those places you know like
1: i mean i do think like a comedy is probably worse than like a drama in terms of a movie theater but like Mm -hmm. you're right that like in a movie theater everybody's all facing the same way Right. Yeah. So like, people are gonna breathe on the back of your head. You go home, take a shower, whatever. You know, I'm not saying people don't get COVID in movie theaters, but like a yeah. poker table, you have a group of people sitting around just breathing right at each other, which also, without COVID, isn't always the most pleasant experience on its own. But the point being that like there there is like you know, I mean, there's certain bad things that you you do say. Well, okay in order to try and avoid this, what am I giving up? What's the, you know, you you make your own calculations, right? But but there is a, once you make those, you have to accept kind of the consequences. Like I've accepted the consequences of like, yeah, I'm just not going to see people as often because this is something that I actually care about being cautious about. Other people who don't want to be as cautious have to accept that they're going to get sick more often, you know? And that's that's just, you make, that's the spot where at least like you have some agency, you know, to some extent, like that's, one thing, whereas like, let's say, let's say you lived somewhere that was getting bombed and just random people were just getting killed on a regular basis. You yeah. you don't have agency there. You still have to accept that on any given day, you might just randomly get murdered. And th- yeah. that, to me, that sounds harder to deal with, you know, yeah. even if the sort of percentages and the death count was the same. It, it feels like, and I mean overall reality is a little bit like that because on any given day you could just you know just have a fatal stroke or whatever like this is this is life right at at any point we could just no longer exist but but there are circumstances under which those are unreasonably high chances and yeah so yeah i mean i
0: I, I think the idea of the agency really matters because Like, um, this happened early in the, um, bombings of Gaza, but it's something that's really struck with me. There was some, some church was attacked or somewhere else where there was like stained glass windows Mm -hmm. and like, you know, a, a Gazan resident like took a picture of, you know, the way the light was hitting the stained glass and the rubble on the, on the ground at sunset. It was absolutely gorgeous. Mm. And there was a lot of debate about like, is this okay? And to be sharing and talking about, and somewhere in the, the the thread comment, you know, someone asked, like, "What if an Israeli took this picture?" Mm-hmm. And I feel like those would be, to me, two fundamentally different. Si- well, if an Israeli soldier, someone who was like sure. actively supporting that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. again, governments aren't their people. Yeah. But like to me, yeah, if you're the one getting bombed, and you're able to find some beauty in the midst of this horrible tragedy, like God bless you, like you know, and if you can share that and help make it more bearable. <clears throat> that's fantastic. And then other people are like, no, look, it's not so bad. Look at the beauty they found. They're yeah. like, you know, yeah. <clears throat> of course not. But those who are in the midst of suffering, yeah. finding beauty, I think, is understandable. It's, I think, the idea of people looking at the suffering of others and finding beauty in it. Or looking at the beauty and then using that as a way to be like, well, no, we act like, I don't think individual person in Gaza could honestly do anything to stop the bombing that's happening other than what they're doing, clearly. Like, you know, petitioning and, like, letting people know about suffering. And it's on all of us to try and try and stop that horrible events. Um, but, like, and I don't know if you see this, but I, I do feel that there are times where I see people kind of, like, finding ways to enjoy terrible situations when they could be doing more to get out of it. And when it's not just a terrible situation for them, but also for others around them. And that's, I think, often where I find kind of, like, I get frustrated somewhat, you know, of the like – there, and again, because it's so it, – it's very difficult for me to critique someone who's in a situation I am not in. So it's like I can only talk about this in terms of situations that I've been in, you know. But um, yeah, it just it, – it I find I often get frustrated watching people using the sort of very human urge to – find a way to make the unacceptable acceptable, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: use that as a way to never actually question, is this unalterably unacceptable or could I change this?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that kind of, you know, is the difference between unnecessary fatalism Mm -hmm. and like a true lack of agency, you know? And that's that's sort of where, where I was going with what I said is, you know, I said is my first reaction. I'd like it to be my first reaction. I'm not saying that yeah. it's necessarily always that, but you know, the I think the first question to ask is, can I do anything to change this? You know that. Right. And so, if if you <clears throat> are suffering yourself, like asking, can I do anything to change this? I think is right. the best way to proceed. If you are if you are able to do that, right? I mean, right. There are certain conditions under which you you might not even be able to to have the time or the thought or whatever to really really go there but like providing that you are able i think that is that is a best first step and when the answer is yeah. yes then it's like just get on it you know and when the yeah. answer is no then that i think is when you know it's not a fatalism it's an acceptance of of reality right, the, right. like this it's a very real question and and there's not always going to be an obvious answer right i mean you don't always yeah. know whether you can do something about something like it's like well here's the problem and then it's going to take some thought to figure out whether you can find any solutions to it and yeah. occasionally maybe it'll be like mm, yeah no there's no, there's no there's nothing i can do about this and then then Acceptance has to occur, but yeah. or is no. useful anyway. I
0: I think that's a really good way to put it, and I I feel like can go back to where we were before. It's why, to me, maybe the better way, even of phrasing the heroic act, is to help people see they have agency that they didn't think they had. Yeah, because yeah. I think that's that's kind of the whole idea. It's a mythology mm-hmm. of the mythology that you don't have a choice, you right. know, and like sometimes in discords in discussions not like Discord the program, but just like disc- like sure. discourse. Discourse, yeah. Um, I'll see people who have a choice to do something today being very critical of those who didn't choose that in the past. Like people who may have been, you know, we would look back on and say, that seems like someone who we would think of as homosexual or transgender today, but they didn't lead that life at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really easy to be like, oh, that was because they were a coward or they were... <laughs> No, like, part of the things people have really fought for is that in a lot of parts of the world, absolutely not enough, but in a lot of parts of the world, people who feel like being straight or being cis or being, you know, a particular gender identity or being, you know, like preppy or any of these things, like, it isn't, uh, they do have agency, they could be something else. But not everyone knows that and not everyone understands that. And that's certainly true today. It's absolutely true of different situations. And so, yeah, the heroic thing can often be just like, no, you don't have to accept the tyranny of this government. You can stand up to the empire. You can stand up to, um, what do they call themselves, the the Nord's party in V for Vendetta or whatever it is. Um, you can vote for – I'm not even going to go – you know, like <laughs>
1: – Yeah, you can vote for, for- – people who you don't think are going to win, but you think it's a better place for your vote to go to. And yeah. you, you can you can try to change things politically, even when it seems hopeless. And mm-hmm. a lot of the times <clears throat> it that fails, and sometimes it doesn't, right? I mean, yeah. democracy is a thing that is not perfectly executed really anywhere on the planet, as far as I know. But there are elections, and they, they are one aspect of, like, deciding how things go right yeah and i'm certainly not gonna say oh just vote and you know and that's it you've you've done everything you can but like there are there are things that people don't think that they can do that Mm -hmm. they can do you know and and as you were saying before like if everybody who doesn't think they have power decides to stand up and use their power together you know and um on the year end thing i you know i was talking about unions and how that they can't you know their power structures and They're not always necessarily going to do things that everybody else thinks are the best things to do. But that is, like, that's the prime example of, like, people in a collective saying, you know what, individually, we don't have that much power. But when we act together, we do have a lot of power. Um, Well,
0: I I, I think one of the mythologies that was built in this country and around and in England and a lot of other places was that unions were fundamentally corrupt. Right. And there was an awful lot of truth to that mythology. And it became in many ways a self-fulfilling narrative because a lot of the people who weren't corrupt wanted nothing to do with the unions. Mm. And a large part of the more recent union movement is a lot of people challenging that mythology. And we're like, wait, unions don't have to be old boys clubs. Yeah. Unions don't have to be for, you know, these particular professions. They can be for things that are the term that's often used is on like a janitor's union 50 years ago would like we would never think of something like seiu which is now one of the strongest unions like i think it still existed but it was you know much more thought that it was for like you know again quote unquote skilled labor yeah you know
1: and in in a way it makes the most sense for i guess less skilled labor or for (sighs) that's not the way to say it i think it makes the most sense for the people with the least power I think is what I would say, which isn't to say it doesn't make sense for people with more power. um, You know, but I I do think there's a difference between like people doing physical labor. That's somewhat sort of fungible, right? Like one person's work is going to be very similar in quality to another person's not identical, but just, it's like, there's a job to be done and you do the job. And I think that's kind of different from like writing a Hollywood movie where it's like, right. You know, art is different from craft and from from different types of of work you know different types yeah. of work are different from one another but that's not to say there shouldn't be a writer's guild that's just to say on a previous episode i said some things about like not <laughs> thinking it was all the best and i want to make sure it's clear that like i'm not saying yeah. that i don't think it should exist and overall i think unions are very important um but that you know it's just it's always You know, always be concrete is kind of one of my sort of mottos of thinking, Mm -hmm. which is like, let's look at exactly what's going on here, you know, and a lot of a lot of unions got slandered for as being corrupt. But then there also is some corruption sometimes and say, you know, just like trying to draw large conclusions, I think often leads to very poor thinking and then poor results. Or good results for the people who are deliberately spreading such things. Right.
0: The misinformation and the, exactly. the mythology. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Like, I think the welfare mom is 100% a mythology that was constructed oh, yeah. in this country. Yeah. Very intentionally for very specific reasons. Yes. Um, You know, and is now being largely dismantled in a mm-hmm. lot of areas, but not in all. Yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking before when you're talking about mythology and how, like, people will look to see, like, is there like a spiritual meaning to the fact that these communities that seem so unconnected come up with similar myths and to this is kind of a divergence, but it's all kind of connected to me. I, I, there, there are two, two myths that I think of that are from like biblical times that to me speak to two ways they can be created that as a person of faith, I find spirituality in, but I don't think are integral. I think you can understand them without any sense of spirituality whatsoever. Um, one of which, as I said, is that like most communities that experience a winter mm. uh, and experience a spring have holidays built around that calendar that celebrate those things in some way. There's often a celebration of abundance at the time of the harvest. There is often a sense of hope in the time of the dark- most darkness. There's a time of renewal and rebirth in the time of spring and people can say like oh it's all stolen from pagans like many of the ways that it's done is true but like a lot of these cultures that have no connection to each other whatsoever still have that kind of celebration of some kind and i think yeah so like it you can find spiritual meaning in that but you can also just say like that makes sociological sense for how we'd react to these cycles of the year in a totally different way another thing that like you know truthers of the bible like to point to is that a number of different middle eastern cultures that had as far as we know archaeologically no contact with each other have their own myth uh, of a flood and that the flood mythology appears in a lot of these different cultures and so a lot of people point to and say oh look that's proof that like you know noah's ark and god's flood is real then some archaeologists looked into this a lot more and discovered That there was a time when that part of the world was covered by a glacier. And at the end of the last ice age, that glacier melted and there was intense flooding in a lot of the world. And that flooding is, I mean, it's literally called the Fertile Crescent and that flooding led to that, but that the flooding caused massive disruption at the time it happened. And so like, of course, all these people would have like a story about a flood because there was flooding. Um, but it wasn't like it is easily scientifically explained not necessarily you know god got angry and thus became incredibly <laughs> genocidal um you know whatever the story is yeah. so i
1: i think I, and it's funny cuz i i knew you, well i thought that you were going to mention the flood because um when i was like much like in school um i remember like actually doing some sort of uh like just like comparative myth, just like looking at like a, several different mythologies, not even just in, in that area, but like throughout the world. And this like idea of a flood does seem to be like recurring in many places. And, right. you know, the idea that like, yeah, well, there was an ice age and the glaciers melted and like, this, yeah, it, you know, it, like something being inspired by history doesn't mean that it's like you know exactly what happened right and yeah. and so if you know if you look at one mythology or another um and and if if you draw some you know whatever kind of um feelings from that you know that's cool i'm not saying you shouldn't you know but yeah. it definitely um you know i mean we we can see where where certain stories can presumably have come from and how you know stories change over time right i mean especially before before the written word right like stories yeah you know stories were passed down generation generation and you know probably combined and and split Mm -hmm. into different versions and i mean this i mean
0: certainly we know of that happening like it it certainly happened biblically and that you know we have different creation stories that are not only logically contradictory in terms of the number of days, but like, you know, in one God is this primordial force that moves over the waters. And in another is this being that walks in the garden with Adam and Eve and like all these differences. And the Hebrew that they're written in is two fundamentally different dialects. Mm. And, and so now a lot of people have come to understand that there were a number of different Hebraic groups that like when the Hebrew people were formed, like people as a way of, Building a national mythology to pull people together, like combine all these Mm -hmm. stories Mm -hmm. in the same way. We know that like the the Saxon and and other peoples who lived in uh, pre-Norman invasion Britain had these stories about a King Arthur and a round table and all these kind of like epic stories and that the Norman invaders, the the French brought with them the story of Lancelot and the story of uh, a king and a knight and a queen and this like love triangle they had. Today, we think of them all as part of the Arthur story of, you know, Arthur cycle of stories. And and the version we have fits together. But, <clears throat> you know, you go back into the records of the stories, it's pretty fundamentally clear that they're, they, they're two totally different origins, two totally different stories. They've just kind of come together, you know, and, and similar, like, did he pull the sword out of a stone or did he get the sword given to him by the Lady of the Lake? Like... <clears throat> Some versions now will kind of combine the two and have like you know he got it out of a stone, but then it's lost in a lake or vice versa. There were just two different stories, like a combined into one mythological cycle. Hmm. Doesn't
1: Beowulf have like a lady in a lake with a sword
0: or something like that?
1: Also, or um,
0: is that a I, thing? I read the, I read the book twenty five years ago and <laughs> saw the movie and mostly was noticing Angelina Jolie. Um, Fair. uh but like um. The main woman in that is the mother of Grendel. Like, Grendel is right. the first monster, and then yeah. his mother, Angel- yeah. Angelina Jolie, is the yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's probably some... There may well be some origin to that.
1: It, it's interesting. I, I, I watched most of the first episode of The Last Kingdom, I think, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's like a, um, Saxon. It's, it's by... Um, it's based on a set of novels by Bernard Cornwell, who did the Sharps okay. novels. Um, yeah. which I did not read these ones, and I, I don't think I'm going to keep watching this series. But um, it's it's maybe good. I don't know. Um, okay. But it's <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's just interesting to see kind of that. That's the period of I think that's like the 800s or something. It's it's the yeah. pre you know Norman invasion. Um, right. And I so I think. I, I'm wondering whether it kind of goes a little bit into the Arthurian kind of like, you know, um, the the older story, you know, or the, yeah, the Saxon story as opposed to the, you know, the Norman story. Um, right. Also today or yesterday, I was looking, I was trying to figure out why they keep saying a- AL slash NL records, like in MLB mm. instead of just saying MLB, and I still don't understand why, but mm. somehow I went down some like. Reddit hole and like saw something about how the the NFC and the NFL absorbed These are all
0: sports ball terms, by the way, for those, yeah. of those who totally lost yeah. MLB is Major League Baseball, oh, yeah. American League and National League and NFC is National Football Conference.
1: That That's right. The, there's an audience for this. I'm not just talking to you. <laughs> um, but anyway, like uh, the, this one large football league absorbed a smaller football league, but took on their two point conversion rule like oh, apparently huh. the nfc didn't have the two point conversion and so it's like you know they they absorbed this other you know and i mean i guess these leagues right. didn't have like huge mythologies built up um although you know you were referencing baseball mythology earlier so it right. just kind of it it just it just felt like a weird parallel of like you know two things merging that were similar but different but mm-hmm. how then they they end up making something new that has aspects of you know both yeah it's kind of totally irrelevant but you know <laughs>
0: <hey>. <laughs> i mean this whole thing has been so you know well i am glad we could still find an hour of things to discuss in this i'm not surprised we probably go a lot longer but i'll just say do you have any last thoughts about the whole uh this whole blurt experience and uh, um thoughts that leads you to on 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 perspectives and suffering and hope and mythology or idiots doing podcasts for no good reason or anything else I guess that the the
1: here on the you know kind of at the conclusion of the holiday season, I feel thankful that uh, the the people that I like to podcast with and the the person I, I most podcast with um, did not want me to do that specific thing. <laughs> no, because I would have said no and probably maybe not felt that bad about it, but. You know, I, I, I'm glad that you didn't ask me to watch the movie. No. <laughs> this was much better, and i and I appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah, um
0: it's funny because they did one year they did a thing where one of them didn't watch the movie, mm. and they tried to see if they could guess who hadn't watched it. And oh, I, that's interesting. I do think it would be fun as an idea to have like a once a month podcast where five people get together to talk about a movie, but every month one person hasn't seen it. And they just try to, like, guess who that is. And I kind of love actually, that. Actually, that may be a new podcast idea you yeah. come up with right here and now. No, I, lo-
1: I love uh, it. I love it. Can I always be the one who didn't watch the movie, though? <laughs> this
0: is not in service of laziness. Um, <laughs> no, not laziness. I would have to look
1: at the Wikipedia page. I'd have to watch, like, you know, pitch meetings and, like, get all the references and stuff, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yep. Yep. That could be fun. That yeah. can be fun. Especially yeah. because, I like, mean, going back, we keep harping on this, but, like, there are definitely mythologies around movies that aren't true. Oh yeah, you know? I mean, play it again, Sam. Yeah, Luke. He's literally, I, I am not your said. father. Yeah, it's all there. So, all right, we're gonna talk a little bit more about mythology in a bonus section. Um, till then, though, thank you all so much for listening. This has been a little bit of a strange episode, but uh, strange is what we do here. But we, the point is, we can find something to discuss in anything. Uh, definitely check out the podcast till death do us part. Do not watch the movie. Um, when Paul was saying he was, they were thankful that I didn't uh, ask them to, to watch it, I I think it's a cinematic e- equivalent of, oh, this smells so bad. Here, smell this. And I feel like a better person because I've stopped feeling a need to get people to smell this. Yeah, I think and The so Flash
1: I'm, was the last one that you said anything about smell this.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so so yeah. So um, check out their podcast. Check out our other podcast. This Star Wars Universe podcast. Of course, please become a member, $5 a month, $55 a year, free access to all the bonus content, all the ad-free content, and you're just getting to support us, which is so incredibly helpful. Uh, Find all of Paul and my information in the show notes. Until then, not today, Death. Not today.